We are speaking with analyst, former U.S. diplomat and foreign policy advisor to the Senate GOP leadership, Jim Jatras. We will be discussing the U.S.-Russia tango in Syria. Let's start with Russia. First, it was U.S. election meddling, then Olympic sports doping, then Russian media acting as a foreign agent, and now this incredulous Salisbury nerve gas attack. What's next? Am I going to discover that my mother has actually been a KGB spy my entire life? Uh, is there any truth at all to the neo-McCarthyism? Well, frankly, I think calling it neo-McCarthyism is unfair to Joe McCarthy, uh, that back in his day, there really were Stalinist agents at the State Department, and, it was, and even if his methods went a bit overboard, there was a real concern. Uh, what we're seeing today is made out of whole cloth. I think this is simply part of a political campaign against Russia uh, by the, um, you know, the term deep state has gone from being virtually unknown to be being totally overused. Uh, but I think there is a reality behind that concept. And it's not just a U.S. deep state. It's not just the CIA and NSA and FBI, the Department of Justice. It also includes uh, our British friends, uh, MI6, uh, the uh, GCHQ. Uh, I've been writing for months that uh, there are British fingerprints all over the Steele dossier, all over the whole Russia Gate, FISA Gate thing. We see it all obviously all over the Scripple case, and it looks like uh, that is coordinated with these latest accusations on uh, the use of chemical weapons in Syria, which unfortunately looks like it will lead to military action as early as tonight, Washington time, where I am, it's a little after 10 p.m. And uh, the talk is now within a few hours, we should be launching an attack against Syria. I would had hoped that that would have been held off until the OPCW investigators who are on their way to Damascus would have had a chance to look at the evidence. And honestly, I think there are people in this town and certainly in London and some other capitals who do not want there to be an independent investigation that don't want their uh, their handiwork being exposed. This has nothing to do really with uh, with chemical weapons at all, in my opinion. It has to do with the fact that at the end of the Cold War in 1991, the United States emerged as the sole superpower, unipolar moment, all that. And there are people who are willing to risk plunging the world into a third world war to preserve that global hegemony uh, against a Russia that's reasserting its own national interests and, of course, also China. Uh, yeah, and let, let's just backtrack a bit. So um, you are a former diplomat, uh, and can you tell us about the significance of the recent unprecedented expulsion of Russian diplomats from the U.S. Uh, and the EU? I don't think this even happened during the first Cold War. It's quite startling. So as you mentioned, these fabricated chemical attacks uh, you know, with the neo-McCarthyism and now this expulsion. I mean, if we put that all together, what, what does this mean? I, I think what we're seeing is the kind of demonization against an, a, a target country and especially its leader personally, in this case, Vladimir Putin, that we've seen so many times in the past, whether it was uh, Milosevic in Yugoslavia or Saddam Hussein or Muammar Gaddafi. Everybody is Hitler. We, we call it the Hitler of the Month Club, is that uh, we, we frame the target as this, this horrible, evil person who must be destroyed. Animal Assad now, President Trump is calling him. And that means that the rules of normal conduct are suspended. We, Because uh, after all, if you're literally Hitler, Nothing, nothing could be out of bounds, and I think that's the kind of uh, mentality that's being being used here. 
Right now, Russia is the target country, Syria, of course, too, but Russia is as well. And the fact of the matter is Russia is not a pipsqueak little country. You can do this, too. Uh, let's remember that what was done with the expulsion of these diplomats, uh, supposedly based on the Scripple case and the certainty that the Russians did it, even though there's no evidence that they were involved at all, but a lot of evidence that MI6 was involved, uh, that, that this is part of uh, isolating and setting up a country for regime change. I would also add that the latest round of American sanctions, which seem designed to I, I think the thinking is is that they can put enough squeeze on Russian oligarchs, and of course, Russian rich people are oligarchs, but American rich people like uh, like George Soros or or, uh, or Zuckerberg or people like this, they're not oligarchs. Uh, that they somehow can stage a coup to remove Vladimir Putin from power, and uh, anybody who knows anything about Russia knows that that's not going to happen. This is not the 1990s when the oligarchs are powerful enough to do that. Uh, all it means is that I think the, the Russians are increasingly going to take the view that they are being targeted for destruction, that war is going to become inevitable. And that's a very dangerous notion that should, should, should end up in their consciousness, because where does that leave us then? What steps may they take on their side in anticipation of hostilities that may to them appear inevitable? Uh, this this is far more dangerous than what we saw even during the first Cold War. No Soviet leader was ever demonized, not even Stalin, ever demonized in the way that, that Putin is. And going back to the deep state, you, you mentioned uh, at a university where I was teaching years ago, uh, you know, I would introduce these uh, topics with my students and people on campus sometimes would mock this idea of deep state and you know, conspiracy theory. And, you know, I, I even Skyped people like yourself into my classrooms. We talked to Peter Dale Scott, who they call one of the uh, grandfathers of that, uh, um, of the deep state, deep politics uh, term. And you recently wrote a piece called Mikhail Octavian Trump, that the best we can expect from President Trump is, you know, make some kind of deal with North Korea, not bomb Russia, withdraw from Syria, avoid impeachment in order to preserve the some semblance of the American Republic. But however, it seems that in this moment in time, Trump is perhaps forfeiting everything he campaigned on if, if he goes through with the Syrian attack, which is not unlike every predecessor. You know, Obama, I'm going to close down Guantanamo. A year later, nothing happens. Pull out of Iraq. They put more troops in Iraq. Um, and then you say that this will have fatal consequences for Washington and usher in or accelerate the collapse of the empire. Uh, can you we're hanging by a thread. Can you tell us more about the situation Trump finds himself in domestically with the deep state? I understand they just raided his, his lawyer's uh, home. That's right. I, I, I've been saying, uh, maybe, maybe my timeline is a little wrong, but I, I, I've been saying that our situation here in the United States is in, or let's say, say on the eve of the 2016 election, was in many respects uh, comparable to the situation of the Soviet Union in the mid-1980s, a system that had become completely unworkable, uh, that vast, urgently needed some kind of reform. Uh, and that's what Gorbachev tried to do. And, 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 and instead of s uh, saving the system and revitalizing it, he ended up destabilizing it further toward its inevitable collapse. 
Um, and and I think that there are other examples like that in the past. The most obvious one being Octavian in the late Roman Republic, who replaced it with uh, the Principiate, as what we tend to think of as as the Empire, which uh, I would argue wasn't the death of the Republic. In many ways, the only way the Republic could have been salvaged at that time. I think if you look, for example, Madeleine Albright has this new book out that where she's warning against fascism. Everybody's a fascist. Trump's a fascist. Putin's a fascist. Viktor Orban is a fascist. I think there is a counter movement against the dysfunction of the neoliberal globalist order where people want to return to their roots, return to some sense of identity and uh, of self-respect, and in many cases, return to religion, as we see not only in Russia, but in Poland and Hungary and other countries. And I think to some extent, Trump was tapping into that revival of traditional American identity, which, as we know, is synonymous with you know racism, sexism, homophobia, Islamophobia, and so forth, because the globalist order doesn't like that kind of uh, unique respect for one's own tradition and culture. And I think that's all the more reason why uh, Putin needs to be destroyed, because in many ways he is seen as kind of the prototype of a, let's say, a new return to the old ways, a new return to the old... Uh, bedrock sources of social tradition and strength. I think even China is China is doing this in its own way, except their the values are not uh, Christian, they're, they're Confucian. And I respect that. Those are not my values, but China's values. I don't see anything wrong with that. I think that, you know, it, it is a complete reversal of the Maoist anti-Confucian campaign, whereas now Confucian thought is very highly respected in China. I think this is a, a positive development. So I think the, the global order is 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 very much opposing that and that is at least in our country centered within the organs of government which are in some ways kind of like uh the old soviet nomenclatura they have their genetic code they do what they do they don't even necessarily think the people are just cogs in a machine but they see trump as a threat to that machine so they've done everything possible to neuter him and especially to make sure he cannot deliver on his campaign pledge to reach out to Russia and to to basically end the uh, the the new Cold War and what has now developed into a regime change uh, impetus from Washington. And that's that's what scares me very much, because these people, I don't think, fully realize the danger of the course that they're 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 setting us upon. Yeah. And just to add to that, you know, I spent three weeks in Russia last year. Uh, we went with a group of 30 Americans. We met with people like Vladimir Posner, Gorbachev himself and spent time with uh, normal Russians. And now living also in the former Soviet Republic of Kazakhstan, uh, even my, my Russian language teacher last night was commenting that he, the people in general here uh, espouse these religious, traditional, more conservative values, the, the majority. So you, they, you, you know, the West, Western Europeans and Americans need to come over here and they can't just call out Putin when the population itself espouses these values. But to move on just briefly, you mentioned the, the chemical attack. You know, the Russians warned that a few, a few weeks ago that any future chemical attack in Syria would be a false flag operation. Um, the U.S. track record in Iraq and Libya are full of holes. No WMDs. Hillary's emails prove that they went into Libya for the gold, the silver, the, the oil. The Russians have a clean track record under Putin in terms of foreign military uh, adventures. The Georgia war in 2008 was instigated by Georgia and backed by NATO, for example. So 
these white helmets, um, the Russia's UN representative stated, I guess, just today to the US, you don't want to hear that no signs of a chemical attack have been found in Duma. You're, you've only sought a pretext and it was eagerly provided by the white helmets provocateurs. So who do we believe then? Well, that's right. In fact, there's even a, a film that's come to everybody's attention. Well, of course, not being reported in our media, but shows a, a training exercise that the people, the emergency workers, showing kids how to lie down, applying a phony foam at the mouth and so forth in preparation for exactly the sort of thing. You know, it's very interesting to compare Duma to the other accusations of chemical use in Syria. In those other cases, for example, the one that occurred in Idlib in April of, uh, 2017, that Trump, for the first time, responded with military force, although people characterized it as pro forma, as a kind of a demonstrative uh, strike, was that uh, nobody disputes there was a chemical attack of some sort, although the the, the ones saying that, that Assad was not responsible for it differ on whether there was a chemical storehouse there that maybe was bombed by a Syrian Air Force raid, or if it was a deliberate release of a chemical agent by the terrorists in order to blame the government, but something there did definitely happen. Um, I noticed that today, with uh, in the last couple of days over the incident in Duma, the Russian and Syrian side are saying specifically there was no chemical attack at all. It was all staged, it was all phony, and that their inspectors went there and could detect no evidence of chemical weapon use. And I find this very interesting for a couple of reasons. One is, every time you get one of these incidents, you know, whether it was the shooting of the Russian ambassador in Turkey, or whether it was the, the guy who plowed down all those people uh, in Marseille with the truck, you have people popping up on the internet saying, oh, that's all phony, it was all staged, that really didn't happen, et cetera, et cetera. I generally don't buy into that. Uh, I, I tend to think most of these things, I, most of them anyway, are real, unless I have good reason to think otherwise. But when you look at the films that are being shown of the of Duma, they really do look rather fishy. You don't really see much of anything except some people hosing other people off with bare hands and no breathing protection or anything else that would indicate concern over real chemical attacks. So I really do wonder what the story is there. And that leads us to the other key. Unlike the other cases where uh, in you know, Ghouta 2013 or in Idlib in 2017, the area was still controlled by the terrorist forces, whether it's Jaish al-Islam or al-Asham, et cetera, et cetera, you could, you could make a plausible case, well, the inspectors can't go there, it's not safe, why wouldn't be safe since these are wonderful freedom fighters, I don't know, but as everybody knows, they're really al-Qaeda-linked terrorists, but in the case of Duma, on the very day that the attack occurred, Jaish al-Islam had negotiated with the Russians an evacuation of Duma, the area is now back in government control, and the inspectors are being invited in. They can actually go to the site and firsthand collect samples and, stay, and, and conduct a real investigation. And that is evidently what the Western powers fear most of all. Um, yeah, in, in, indeed. And getting into the, the meat of the conflict, uh, you know, previously NATO commander Wesley Clark warned us that the Pentagon planned to take out seven Middle Eastern countries. Iraq, Somalia, Sudan, Libya, and Yemen are more or less down for the count. Syria and Iran remain. As we speak, U.S. warships uh, and aircraft are currently hovering off the coast of Syria preparing for strikes. What do you think is going to happen? Um, and is Syria part of a larger game between the U.S., Israel, Saudi Arabia, and Iran, Russia? I mean, what's, what's going on here? 
Well, I, I would, in fact, say it's really not about Syria at all. Just like uh, you, the problem in Ukraine is not really about Ukraine. It is a theater in a much broader conflict. Obviously, with respect to Ukraine, the real objective there is Russia, that having a regime change in Ukraine where then we could draw Ukraine into NATO. Uh, for example, people say, well, the Russians shouldn't have seized Crimea. Maybe they shouldn't have, but I don't know what their alternatives were. Because if they hadn't, you can bet your bottom dollar there will already be a NATO base at Sevastopol. As far as Syria goes, it's not really so much about Syria, it's about Iran, Iran, Iran. That if you look at the team around Trump, if you look at his first trip overseas, first to Saudi Arabia and then to Israel, who are really calling the shots on American policy, people like me thought we were voting for put America first, not put Saudi Arabia and Israel first, but that's what we ended up with here. Uh, yes, they see Iran as their regional adversary, and they want the Americans to do their dirty work for them. And given how much influence the Israelis and the Saudis have over the American uh, nomenclatura, uh, they have managed to have Trump dancing to their tune. Now, maybe he was never anything but a fraud. I don't know. I think the fact that he keeps saying, we want to get out of Syria, we want to get along with the Russians, indicates to me that at some core, he really wants to do these things consistent with what he said in the past. But for whatever reason, he has found himself like a wheel attached to a, an axle, and all he can do is spin. Uh, it, it, it's very, very sad. But I think the, the fact is, is that we are carrying out the wishes of other countries in the region. We don't have a dog in that fight if you look at our national interest. But unfortunately, our national interests have very little to do with it. That there are other countries, and I would say very powerful interests within the United States, that want to make sure that Trump goes down the same dismal road as Barack Obama, George W. Bush, and Bill Clinton. He does indeed sound like a, a kind, of, a sort of a prisoner, as you say. Maybe that explains why one week he says, "Let's get out of Syria," and then they push him and uh, the bomb Syria. Uh, you wrote another piece uh, where you cited James Mattis declaring that great power competition with Russia and China is now the primary focus of U.S. national security and that this is a World War I um, scenario. The Chinese and Russians did not veto the U.N. Uh, author authorization for kinetic action in Libya the last time, and neither of these activated a World War scenario. Um, the U.N. Security Council failed to pass a resolution on Syria today but Nikki Haley has previously stated that come hell or high water, the U.S. is going into Damascus. Uh, and this morning I was watching a Russian TV news segment where they were discussing Russia's options, all of which are no good. If Russia stands down, it basically folds, goes home, and signs its own political and military death sentence, writing itself off from geopolitical games in the Middle East and the world. And even if Russia doesn't respond, the situation could still spiral into a war. And if Russia does respond, it could obviously escalate quickly. Is Syria the geopolitical red line in this game of empires? And what, can, what do you think can happen from here? What, what, what can Russia do? Well, it, it largely depends on what, what the Western powers with our Saudi friends, who of course we know are so passionate about democracy and human rights, that they will definitely be part of the intervention in Syria as well, assuming it occurs as I, I think is almost certain at this point. Um, it really depends partly on what the magnitude of it is, uh, how many uh, Russians are killed, if any Russians are killed. Um, if you listen to the American media, if you watch uh, Fox News on the right or MSNBC on the left, who are virtually identical on this issue, by the way, 
if, if the issue is raised, as it sometimes is, but not often, what happens if some Russian gets Russians get killed? They tend to respond with kind of a almost like a bloodthirsty glee of saying, "Well, if they if they do, they'll remember what happened a few weeks ago in the Euphrates when some of their forces, their contractors, crossed the river there and tangled with the Americans, and we slaughtered them in droves." That tart that really bloodied their nose, and they'll think twice before they do something like again because they'll get worse next time. That's the kind of mentality we're dealing with here. Now, maybe some of the people in the professional military, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the son of a career Air Force officer, uh, will be a little more realistic about this. Uh, when uh, General Gerasimov said that they would respond to, uh, with a counterattack against the attacking forces in, in such an eventuality, uh, I don't think he was just blowing smoke. I don't think he was saying that without authorization, authorization, but it does put the Russians in a bind. If they didn't, don't do anything, you're right, they're slinking away with their tail between their legs and signing their own geopolitical death warrant. Now, maybe they're saying to themselves, at that point, we know war is coming, war is inevitable. And as Vladimir Putin has said, growing up on the mean streets of, Saint, uh, in his case, not St. Petersburg, Leningrad, that if you know you're gonna be in a fight and it's inevitable, you strike first and you, at a time and place of your choosing which is itself a very, very scary thought to think that we could end up in a direct war because the other side decides it's inevitable and they strike first in a way that's most advantageous to them. Um, I, I hope we don't get to that stage. Uh, what they may have decided is if that's true, that they don't respond in Syria because they're biding their time strategically. Or they may decide that we are weak enough now in comparison or at least within the theater that they can strike back, bloody our noses back, and then we're still left with the same strategic standoff, the same balance of terror, but then the ball is in the Americans' court to see how we're going to respond. I don't know. I hope that guy, you know that kind of gaming is happening in various people's minds, but you don't know what kind of uh, conclusions they're, they're uh, reaching. One of the fears I have is that if we attack Syria, kill a bunch of Russians, and then they do respond, and then kill some Americans, the hue and cry in this country will be deafening. The Russians are killing Americans. Nobody will say, yeah, but didn't we kill some of them first? Because that won't matter. Because we are, we are, let's say, very cheap with the blood and lives of people in other countries. But anybody who impugns anybody on our side, well, they've done something bad to Americans. So that's a different scale of values entirely. That's the American exceptionalism. And what of international law? So now we're seeing false flag operations basically open, openly being carried out. The UK handling of the Skripal affair was a violation of international law and protocol. And um, the US breaches of UN protocol in the past with uh, Nicaragua, the case in the 80s, Nikki Haley now saying even without a UN resolution, uh, we'll go in. What's happened to international law? Uh, it, it is not a factor at all. Uh, just as the U.S. Constitution is no longer a factor here domestically, the international legal system and the U.N. Charter is simply not a factor. And that's why, by the way, you start getting um, suggestions from various quarters that the um, the single country veto, the permanent members, has to be dispensed with, or at least Russia's veto has to be dispensed with. It has to be find way, a, a way to circumvent it. And you hear this all the time. For example, even when in 1999, when the attack was launched against Yugoslavia about Kosovo, you heard people say, well, we couldn't get it through the uh, Security Council, so we decided to work through NATO instead. 
as though NATO is a legal equivalent of the Security Council and confers any legitimacy on it. We've simply lost the language. And if you listen to any of the discussion on the floor of the Congress or anywhere in the American media, you very rarely will hear anybody say, uh, gosh, is, there, is this legal? Even under American law, they don't even raise the question of whether it's legal, much less under international law. It's simply not a factor. Uh, you mentioned exceptionalism. Look, uh, exceptionalism means different things to different people, under di uh, depending on the discussion. Look, I think America is exceptional in some ways. It's exceptional in the way every country is exceptional. It's my country. You know, you have your country. He or she has her, his or her country. That There's only one country for each of us, and it's unique in that way. We also, I think, have a decent American ex exceptionalism in the sense that, you know, the ideals of the American Revolution, that people should govern themselves, their rights should be respected, they should be able to be governed with a, their consent. Uh, I think that was unique and exceptional in, America, in, in world history and was an inspiration to many people around the globe. Uh, I, what I don't think anybody should respect is this kind of exceptionalism of extraordinary privilege where we can do things that violate the sovereignty of other countries, violate the solemn treaty obligations that we have signed and that serve as protections for us as well as for other countries and say it's okay because it's us. That's, you know, that's that's almost like, um, I would say that's a kind of exceptionalism of, of, of Bolshevism. Uh, in fact, uh, what's his name? Uh, what's his name? Mr. Lavrov, whom I greatly respect, said in 2007 that American policy is, is reminiscent, reminiscent of the experience of Bolshevism and Trotskyism, that we are we are the vanguard of all progressive humanity. We can do what we please because history is on our side. In fact, you hear this phrase all the time, that the Russians are on the wrong side of history. Well, what are we? we? Are we all a bunch of Marxists or something? I don't, who, who invented this stuff? But now, uh, I almost feel sometimes when you look at the way Russia is, that it took 75 years, but the whites finally won the Civil War. But unfortunately, the Reds control Washington and London. I would completely agree with you. I personally espouse uh, the exceptional American, original exceptional American values, uh, although I have a problem because I have three citizenships now. <laughs> but um, what's your what's your third one? Well, Croatian and Mexican now. I just got oh, Mexican. I forgot Mexican. <laughs> we'll have to build a wall to keep you out. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I was referring to Putin's uh, opinion piece in the New York Times that he wrote in 2013, if you recall, yeah. about this problem of the American yes. exceptionalism. And uh, finally, uh, what about the information and media war? You know, I've spent uh, two years in my spare time building up this channel and it's, it's moving along. Uh, but now we're seeing independent media being completely shut down almost on a weekly basis. Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Google are literally terminating accounts. Um, you're a frequent guest on Russia Today and other news media. Yeah. Russia Today America has just been kicked out of Washington, D.C. last week. It seems the censorship is intensifying and reminiscent of Nazi Germany or Soviet Union. What's your take on the media situation? Uh, in, in, in 2016, I published a paper called uh, How American Media Serves as a Transmission Belt for Wars of Choice. It got all, into all the issues of the deep state and atrocity porn and how the media served as like a, not a, I wouldn't even say a servant, but as a as an integral part of the ruling establishment and used uh, uh, these uh, visuals to to justify these, these aggressive policies. Um, and that 
what I hoped would be new was not only the existence of foreign outlets like RT or Press TV or uh, any of the others that are Al Jazeera that give us another point of view, but the existence of the Internet and all the alternative media, which operate in a sense kind of the way that Samizdat did in the, the Soviet Union and other communist countries. The problem is, is that even though the truth may be out there against the propaganda campaign, it doesn't become uh, re uh, realized until the media itself acknowledge it or pick it up. So you end up with this sort of two-tier reality where the media report everything that the government says, and then you have the other media coming from the outside or within the alternative media, and that, unless it's reported in the official media, is conspiracy theories. So the truth is out there, but as you're right, what they're trying to do is progressively police it. That even we're we're finding now not only shutting down things like like RT, uh, but also I noticed that also here in Washington they dropped uh, CGTN, the Chinese station, and uh, that as far as the alternative media goes, social media goes, we are seeing a lot of pressure uh, to police the media for not only Russian bots but for hate speech. So basically, the official ideology will become the judge of what is fake news, what is real news, what is uh, uh, healthy debate versus illegitimate speech, like, quote, hate speech. And uh, yes, I think that the organs of, of, uh, of, of official media are working together with the authorities to shut down these alternatives and also to, um, to cast aspersions on the personalities and integrity of the people who appear on them, like yours truly, where you're made out to be the equivalent of, uh, you know, Lord Ha Ha and Tokyo Rose during uh, World War II. Um, and I, I, I fear that the event of um, hostilities, uh, that that becomes something that is actionable from a legal point of view once the time comes. So you're saying you're not a Russian agent? No, I'm not a Russian agent. I, I, I have this crazy idea. I'm an American agent. You know, back in my, my, the old days when I worked at the Senate after my State Department years, we used to say as conservatives, you know, what we really need is at the State Department is, is an American interest section. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, you, you, especially for those on the, the conservative side of the spectrum who want to preserve what's left of the American nation and thought that Trump was our friend by saying he wanted to make America great again, preserve our national cultural identity. Um, uh, th this, if, if he goes into Syria or he does uh, go down this road, I think it would be something close to the ultimate betrayal. Okay, and any final comment or thought to leave us with? Um, I, I, you know, despite everything, I try to be an optimist. I, I look at the fact that Look, in, in 1917 and through the, the civil war in Russia, through everything that ensued, I'm sure a lot of people despaired that their country could ever be itself again. But it turned out it did. Uh, that I think it's something close to a miracle. Maybe it is a, a certifiable miracle in that respect. I don't know that we will be that lucky in our country, especially given uh, the fact that this could unfold in the context of a global war. Somebody asked me, uh, are you talking about the first world war? I said, no, this could be the last world war. Uh, that uh, if this goes terribly, terribly wrong, we may never get a chance to recover our country, even through a an improbable or circuitous path that may last over several years or even decades. Um, I, I, I want to believe that something good will all come out of it. 
But right now, things are looking very, very bad. I, I looked at Trump's election as kind of the last gasp, the last chance for our country to rescue itself from the direction it had been going. And I spelled this out in, in that 2016 study that I mentioned. Uh, if it goes wrong, I don't think we get another chance, not in the way that is foreseeable to us right now. All right. It's tough these days to keep an independent opinion, and we do hope you continue your important work uh, and analysis, Mr. Jatras. Uh, we'll Thank post, you. We'll post the links. You're on Twitter. Uh, we'll post uh, your, your websites, jimjatras.info. Uh, thank you again for this interview. Thank you, Mr. Morich.